You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Rob Taylor, Company Director of 4GD, a UK-based organization specializing in developing unique close combat training facilities, what they call smart facilities, and the future of urban warfare training. Rob, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. So before we jump into discussing what I view as one of the most impressive urban training concepts I've ever seen, I thought maybe you could give us a little of your background and how you got into developing smart facilities for urban warfare. That's, it's a really good place to start. And again, thanks for having me. So I was in the Royal Marines over here in the UK for 11 years. And about midway through my career, I was lucky enough to be on the first modern urban combat instructors course, which was a concept that the Royal Marines brought over primarily from the USMC and the experiences they'd had in Fallujah. And is a huge step up from where the Royal Marines have been operating in the urban environment before through to modern urban combat tactics and intuitive based tactics. And while the course was, it was a real improvement, it was still very heavy on a number of aspects. One was the inside the room mentality. The course was almost primarily focused around making entry and then securing the room. And it was also still quite subjective through no fault of the instructors who were fantastic, but it was gantry-based instruction and tuition. So they could see a lot of what was going on, but not everything. And I think the final dynamic to that sort of triangle of what we saw as a bit of a opportunity or, or problem, whichever way you look at it, was you had to search far and wide, both nationally and internationally, for type of immersive training facility you need. You were losing a lot of training time, traveling to facilities, getting them set up, training in them for a day, two days, then traveling back. I just thought, you know, there was an opportunity to bring those sort of three aspects together, sort of objective-based training inside the room and outside the room, and then sort of bringing that back to sort of a localized garrison-based training rather than sort of a centralized training facility. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I will say for all the listeners, you know, full visibility, me and Rob have talked before. I find your background very interesting. One, because I deal with a lot of urban warfare training communities, especially capabilities developers, everything from DARPA to home station training that our units are doing. And to find a urban warfare military person who has an interest in urban warfare and then gets out of the military and starts creating facilities designed to improve military training, I think is kind of unique because usually when I talk to people, their capabilities developers, just because they're scientists or whatever, they're relying on internal military personnel who may have extensive experience with urban warfare, either combat experience or training experiences as instructors in different courses. But it's rare to find the combination of the both, right? The person developing the capability is the one with the experience and felt the gap. It kind of reminds me of me going into urban warfare research as I felt the gap as a company commander in Baghdad, got into academics, and then started focusing on something I had felt before. It's a really good point, actually. I think the the analogy between you and academia and us in industry is a very good one. I think one of the things that we feel is a strength in sort of how we work at ForgeD is we have a very strong veteran presence in the business, but we also have a very strong sort of technology aspect to the business. And I think it's the closeness of the experience to the technology side of the business. I.e., you don't have that sort of individual sat talking to the technologist that is relying on anecdotes and lessons identified type reports. You're talking to individuals who have a live personal experience. So some of the immersion aspects are 
genuine human experiences. And I think that's quite critical because you can really get the sense of certain events or combat situations down on paper. But as you know from your experiences, sometimes it's the aroma of the street, it's the random audio soundtrack playing on a car that goes past you that really triggers that immersion. It's not necessarily the things that might seem logical when you sort of read a report and then try and interpret it, if that makes sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. And I think we'll get into that about, especially about recreating an operating environment to get to a training objective. We want to train as we fight. I think we're going to get to that. And I'm really excited about that, especially as you often find capabilities or training tools, training, especially virtual environments that are provided to the military that kind of somehow always seem to miss the mark in understanding how you know progressive or sequential training is conducted at the small unit level into the echelon. I'm excited to get into that, but let's cover a couple basics that even I don't admittedly know. What does the acronym 4GD stand for? It's a really simple one. We, with the company, we originally founded the company as fourth generation development, which was born out of the fourth generation warfare that you and I both experienced during our service. We merely shortened it from fourth generation development to 4GD to make our website easier to type in, basically. How would you classify what does 4GD as a company do? It's a really good question. I think I'll split the answer into sort of two halves. There is, as you know, we, we had a launch event last week and effectively that marked a bit of a watershed moment. And I'll come on to why that is. So I'd say from formation in 2016 to effectively last week, we have aimed to improve and create training infrastructure that facilitates high fidelity, high frequency urban operations training. So looking at bringing high quality training facilities onto garrison locations to enable people to train on an hourly, not weekly basis. What the watershed of last week started was we've always viewed that as the foundations for moving into the more collective and strategic space. And what I mean by that is once you start to dot multiple high quality training facilities around the estate or around the defense community, you then have an opportunity. And what we I imagine we'll discuss in more detail in a minute, but what we launched last week were two capabilities. One was a data collection system and one was a synthetic training environment. And if you have multiple physical training facilities dotted around a community and you can then start capturing all the required data in those facilities, back to sort of what do we do as a company? We want to make training better, which is sort of what we've done today and what we will continue to do. But now we step into the opportunity space, what we believe we can achieve as a business, which is tying together all those facilities to facilitate both an objective-based comparison system. Imagine you have a battalion at location A and another battalion at location B. Being able to analyze how those two units are performing in an objective way has got an amazing potential in terms of force capability generation. And then secondly, the data that you're collecting these facilities enables the synthetic training environment that USDOD have described. And I think it bridges the gap in that there's a genuine ambition and a genuinely great ambition to see how synthetic can enhance current training. But one of the things that we believe has been potentially lost or a simple step in the journey has been missed is to enable that synthetic training to be sufficiently high fidelity for close combat operators you know, people that are used to going into urban environments and fighting in a high fidelity, high intensity sort of manner, that synthetic needs to be fantastically detailed. And to achieve that level of detail, you need to be capturing every single thing that is happening in the physical. And if you don't do that, there is going to be a massive gap between what is delivered in the synthetic and what the operator or soldier is expecting and what he is willing to put up with. So to sort of rotate back to the original question, it's effectively, what do we do as a company? Today, improve and create training spaces, and that will continue 
well into the future. From now, how we can then use those training spaces to both enhance objective performance analysis and then really take a step with defense into what synthetic training can actually offer in the long term. Okay, so that makes sense. I know it's hard to, you know, basically hard to explain your capability or what you build. You know, if I've ordered my own sense, you know, immersive training environments, but it's much more than that. I mean, you did mention the launch and I will put the video, the link to the video in the notes to the podcast so people can go watch and actually see what we're going to talk about. Some of it you can try to visualize in your mind, but if you've never seen it, even if you have lots of military experience, you've done lots of urban warfare training. And, you know, I kind of traveled the world and go to urban warfare training, either conferences, events, or I really like to get out to the training facilities and see not only what is it that the soldiers are using, but how they are using it. So I know from your website, from from the launch event, that you kind of have this different stages of the facilities that you can build based on I'm sure customer interest. Can you kind of explain the the different stages of urban warfare, what you can do and how you stage that out as in kind of, I know you echelon it. Yeah, it's a great question. And to be honest, it sort of leads into some of how we sort of our philosophy as we've moved forward in terms of how we view these, both what we do and sort of how we do it. So the smart facility is an overarching term that we effectively use to house the five tiers within it. So effectively, if you imagine the smart facility is the roof over the the space. And we broke the product or the capability, if you will, into five levels. We sort of looked at it again, like a bit of a triangle, because different clients clearly have different operational requirements, you know, the areas they're operating in, the requirements that those area of operations put upon them. There's a technological sort of aspect to it in terms of how technological does the unit want to get to? What's the level of current technological risk. And then there's the final aspect, which is obviously always the same for any sort of work with defence, is the financial one. And we're aware military budgets are cyclical, annual. And so we wanted to make sure that instead of having a facility that had to be bought or sort of procured in a single incident, you can effectively grow it over time. And what we found over the last four years is that actually has the dual benefit of customers procure the initial capability and then develop it, define it, work out what the requirements are, and then grow it and move up the tiers as they become increasingly comfortable from a sort of operational output and a sort of technological level of comfort. So to answer the question, there are five tiers in the smart facility. Level one is SIMWall, which is our reconfigurable panels, deliberately non-ballistic. Effectively, this enables the creation, if you imagine you have a 40 by 40 meter space, the creation of an almost unlimited number of scenarios. And we believe that that was critical. A lot of my career, you'd go into a training facility for the first time. It was complex. You had to think about where your vulnerable points were, constantly working out where the barrel of your rifle was pointing. The second time you went through, it was the same. By the third or fourth rotation, you knew the facility inside out and you were really sort of in a bit of a a sort of subconscious uh, autopilot mode. And you weren't really being tested, which meant that as the scenarios happened, you were fighting the scenario, but not necessarily fighting the facility, which clearly makes things a lot easier. So our first point was SIMWAR, which is a reconfigurable panel system. Level two is when the thing gets technological. And level two is Forge Audiovisual, which encompasses a number of things, starting with AAR. One of the key frustrations we had with After Action Review was there were a number of the facilities I trained in had cameras, but the problem with them, they had sort of been put up as a bit of an afterthought to the structure, which meant that there was huge numbers of areas that were occluded, areas you couldn't see. 
there was no genuine narrative between the different cameras. You know, one camera would be facing north, one camera would be facing south, which meant as an operator stepped off camera A, they would step into camera B, but from the exact opposite side, which makes after action review particularly challenging. So we realized with movable walls, we're going to have to come up with a camera system that enabled a total level of coverage, regardless of where the users were moving the panels or whatever configuration the panels are going to be into. Then into 4D audiovisual, we brought in lighting, infrared, coloured or white, smoke, aroma and audio. And I'm going to focus quite heavily on audio. Some of the facilities I went into did have basic audio systems. And I think we sort of alluded to it right back at the beginning when we were talking about that thing that really triggers or immerses the individual. And one of the things we realized is a lot of facilities had focused very heavily on whizzes and bangs, you know, RPG impacts or machine gun fire. And while they're useful, actually, the things that I always remembered from my deployments were dogs barking, birds cawing, that sort of thing. That's what really immersed you in the environment. And the actual Clearly, the combat and the explosions and gunfire brought you to it, but you needed to be immersed before that happened. So we focused very heavily on pattern of life, passive pattern of life builders. And then you move into, as I've mentioned, the special effects. The final dynamic to 4G audiovisual that we find you know, is a critical aspect to us is the ability for the operator to interact with the technology. And I'll use a very basic example for that, namely light. Most facilities that had sort of light in, the instructor turned it off or turned it on based on the scenario before the training began, which lost a huge training opportunity, namely, as you move into an urban block of flats, houses, do you turn all the lights off, kill the lights of that building, flip your nods down and go black light? Or do you, for instance, if you're operating against an adversary that potentially has night vision capability, try and flare them out, turn the lights on and go to visible light? So we have a huge tilt within 4GAV for the user to be able to interact with the environment as they would for real. So if they see a light switch, they can hit a light switch and what you'd expect to happen would happen. That brings us on to level three, which is probably one of the aspects that you and I have had a brief chat about before, which is how you recreate the adversary. It's probably guessed based on what I said about level one. Our facilities are primarily non-ballistic. We have done work in the ballistic space, but clearly one of the aspects that non-ballistic offer is the ability to create genuine force-on-force training evolutions. However, despite that, one of the gaps in force-on-force is the ability to objectively measure operator to target or enemy engagement. So we went about to create a target that can be used in the non-ballistic environment that could accurately record all the data in terms of how they had been engaged, accuracy of shot, etc. However, that's not really where we stopped. What we realized is when I went through training with non-ballistic ammunition, sort of paint mark around types, is the first evolution, the enemy or the individual that's been nominated as enemy for the day is enthusiastic, center of the room, and behaves very much like you'd expect an adversary to for real. But as a result of the pain elements of non-ballistic ammunition, by scenario 20 or run through 20, they're hiding in the corner of the room, which is great if you are doing a progressive training scenario. However, if you're analyzing separate teams or individuals, that scenario is getting increasingly difficult as the enemy starts to behave differently. So what we wanted was a target that could behave like a human, but be objective and always behave the same regardless of the number of scenarios. So we started to look at how that target could be triggered. So the smart target is able to be triggered through motion, through audio, even through light. We wanted to get really into the weeds of what the little percentage gains that soldiers can do in the training environment that is going to help them become better and safer in the operation environment. So you know, remembering to switch the IR light on your pet off as you get to a door to make sure that that IR light doesn't go through the crack. 
if when that happens in the training environment, that causes the target to trigger before they've entered the room, they'll never forget to do that again. And that's the sort of level of detail we'd like to get to. And that leaves me the final two elements, which were, as you very kindly mentioned, the launch last week. The first is Effectus, which is a passive data collection and analysis system that spreads a number of sensors in a passive and invisible to the end user manner across the operator facility and weapon system. So everything that operator or soldier does as they move through a smart facility is captured from weapon manipulation to motion to eye tracking. We want to capture everything. The so what that data effectively goes three ways. One is to go into the sort of instant after action review. Did the soldier in question use his eyeballs to clear the corner? Did he use his weapon to clear that corner as he's moved into the room? Or did he use both? The second aspect is, can you start to really look at TTP or training or operational technique analysis? Is the method soldiers are using to move down corridors or move into rooms covering the maximum amount of that vulnerable space? Or actually, are we prioritizing the left-hand side of the room or the right-hand side of the room? And finally, as I sort of briefly alluded to earlier, is once you start to collect all that data, you've got effectively the input for a synthetic output. And that leads very nicely into level five, which is ACs, which is our virtual or synthetic simulator. And I think the key point here, and as you mentioned earlier, it's very difficult to sort of articulate this sometimes without without visuals. But effectively, we looked at what the possibilities or what the art of the possibilities was with virtual. And there is aspirations for dismounted close combat training to potentially move into the virtual in the future. And I have my opinions on that, and it may well happen. However, we felt that fidelity, the ability, how the soldier holds his weapon, how the soldier interacts with the operator in front of him, how the soldier manipulates that weapon, that level of exceptional fidelity, and the only likeness I can give it to is professional sport, wasn't there. So what we focused on was what in the urban environment is high cost and very difficult to replicate versus things that are low cost and not that difficult to replicate. So if one imagines a room entry, is actually a moderately low cost activity for defense. You've got the cost of the ammunition and the cost of the training estate. But other than that, it's a relatively free activity. Whereas bringing potentially an I-Star asset, a drone, or bringing in joint fires, a sniper, or up to fast air into that environment is very complicated. So what we've done is created what we've defined as integrated reality, which is an environment where the close physical combat space, i.e. the soldiers moving down a corridor and entering rooms, is done physically in an environment that's high fidelity and highly immersive. But the depth battle space, predominantly the battle space that's being managed by the commander, i.e. everything outside that close battle, is then synthetic. So if you imagine a stack of soldiers moving down a corridor in the physical, and then the commander at the back of that stack observing the synthetic battle space through a device such as an ATAC, You're testing both the commander's ability to control the deep battle while simultaneously testing the soldier's ability to perform in the close battle. And we feel that combination of synthetic for what is required and what is difficult to do in the physical against physical, what is easy to do in the physical and what is what requires the fidelity of the physical is critical. And it's something we believe defense, I think, is starting to pivot to that point. But in the, the early days of virtual reality, there was an instantaneous drive to recreate dismounted close combat training in the virtual, which just felt to us like finding a requirement for available technology rather than what I believe defense should always look for, which is using technology to fulfill a legitimate operational requirement, if that makes sense. 
So that that's great. And there's so many questions I have starting from level one to the, the last one. Let me start with the last one because that was probably the most relevant to listeners, right? The one that you just talked about and why when I watched the launch event, I saw something different. In urban warfare training or even in training in general, we think that there's this giant, well, there is this giant chasm of soldiers, you know, from squad up to brigade interacting with the physical recreation of the operating environment, right? So you build up these buildings, you know, our biggest one, it has over now the numbers escapes me like 600 buildings. You're trying to replicate the physical environment and you, because of you can't recreate cities. You can't, the complexity since urban is defined by people, infrastructure, and physical terrain. We, there's a great quote by Ralph Peters when you ask the military to, to discuss urban, they think about buildings. They don't think about people. And it's so hard to replicate that when you're training, or, or they don't think about the infrastructure or the, you know, the physical aspects, you know, the lights, you know, all that because of how expensive that would be to create everything. So we think there's this giant chasm. And what I see people doing is, you know, going from, like you said, low fidelity physical training spaces that you can do enter and clear a room. You can do clear a building, multiple rooms. You can do clear a street all the way to, okay, but I want to, I want more realism. So they jump to a virtual, right? And what I tell people is you know, if call of duty increased urban warfare skills, then people would be masters of it by now. Once you jump to that first person shooter, like you're controlling an avatar in this high speed, high fidelity environment that you created, there's a loss in, in my mind, cognitive learning, the experience, everything you get from training and why there has to be some combination of the physical rigor to the virtual replication. And I think if somebody watches the video, I think hopefully somebody would see that integration. But let's, let me go back to kind of level one, you know, all militaries have mount sites, military operations on urban terrain. Although we don't, we say we did away with that word, but that, that's what it is, right? We put some buildings out in the training area. I like the fact that you don't do live ammunition actually as a shoot house is usually a single building that's put out somewhere, highly restrictive on changes you can make to the shoot house or where even you can shoot in what directions. I get that why you wouldn't want to go live. But what I like about your your level one is, and correct me if I'm wrong, you can take existing military construction or existing buildings and add panels to the structure rather than just saying, okay, give me a flat piece of ground. I want to put up a training facility. You can actually add panels, everything from with inside of existing buildings to reconfigure them to adding tunnel system inside of a building or connecting buildings. That's what your panels of kind of the level one can do, right? Yeah, it's a really good question. When you're making a point earlier about the sort of the largest mount facility you guys have in the States and it looks at 600 buildings, one of the things I just quickly looks up and I'm sure someone could uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but in just Manhattan, there are 60,000 buildings. And so the thing that I think which leads back to Simwall is you can aim on large training to replicate as close as possible to large cities or large urban conurbations. But unless you have a almost unlimited budget and unlimited space, you're never going to recreate that level of complexity. So instead of trying to look inside out, what we try to do is look outside in, which comes back to your panels, is imagine being able to use a 60 foot by, say, 30 foot facility that pre-exists like a hangar, you know, that are dotted on all military installations, be they UK or US, filling those with panels and being able to come up with maybe four to 5,000 different combinations in one small footprint. And then you're starting to get into the realm of actually recreating, say, tens of thousands of different types of structures in terms of double doors, narrow corridors, wide corridors, small rooms, big rooms. 
you start to really get into that ability, at least the ability, not necessarily the actuality, but the ability to recreate the variation and complexity of large spaces. And I think it's, yeah, you made a number of good points in the question. I think one is just that, can you recreate a large city as a military training facility? And I think we all know the answer is probably no. So the best you can do is to create the biggest thing you can do. So then you have to flip it around to go, but we still need to train for all the different eventualities, building types. And so that's really one of the fundamental principles, driving principles of the, of the reconfigurable system is that being able to create multiple structural spaces within one space is potentially, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's just another way of looking at the problem of how do we prepare our troops for the vastly more complicated urban environments that exist today than potentially existed 50 or 60 years ago. No, it makes perfect sense. And I understand kind of the the theory behind it. One of the things when I visit training sites around the world, based on construction requirements of most militaries, is just a lack of density, right? So the streets are always wide enough to drive vehicles down. The alleys are wide. There's a few places like the Israeli site in Tel Azim, but again, it, it's static. It doesn't change. But this inability for me to find you know, the urban canyon, the density, and if you could rapidly change that in the space and add walls, create obstacles, and I think you would change the value of a training site, whether it's outside your back door or at these major training sites. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. I'm thinking about the facilities I use when I was training, and I, I think they almost feel quite sterile in their space. And then it's very easy to affect potentially a scenario such as a casualty evacuation when you've got a lovely boulevard that's maybe sort of 40, 50 feet wide, rather than getting a stretcher down a two foot wide alleyway. And I think it's that the old adage of, you know, make training harder than the operational environment is something that we really need to sort of revisit. Because like you said, I think the sort of lovely open boulevards of Western Europe, which I know a lot of the training facilities, both sides of the Atlantic have been designed on. That's great. But I think the modern urban environment is a lot dirtier, a lot closer, and a lot more dense. I think density is a great word that you said that, you know, the ability for a commander to be sat in the middle of a street and look up and see 200 windows looking at them and having to work out right, I obviously can't cover all 200. So how am I going to analyze what the greatest area of risk is? I think that's something that we need to put the pressures on our raise the pressure in a safe to fail training environment so they don't have to confront that level of complexity for the first time in an operational environment. It seems simple, but I don't think people realize once you have a training site, like a mount site, whether it's at your base or at some major training center, it becomes well known, right? The satellite imagery they hand out to the place doesn't change. If I've trained in, in that site once, I know it to detail. Yeah, maybe you change the insides of the rooms, right? You add stuff in there, but I know that site. For me, you know, I think of imagine if you could change it to where the imagery that somebody has no longer applies because it's been reconfigured in such a rapid way, which it really reminds me of our panel that we did on the Battle of Mogadishu. And one of the reasons that urban navigation was so hard is that 50,000 refugees had flooded the city because of the civil war and thrown up 10 buildings called lean-tos, completely reconfigured the urban space to where maps really didn't apply anymore. Yeah, you make a great point. When as a commander, you're about to move in and do a mount exercise onto one of your facilities in the US. Like you said, you're given a load of satellite imagery, aviation imagery, and you pretty much, let's be honest, go through the same seven questions and orders that you did on the last exercise because you know it works. 
However, imagine now in a environment, you know, last time you did the scenario, you were looking at a dense northwest European city. But now because the depth battlefield is synthetic, suddenly, to use your example, you're looking at a um, the sort of lean to right ups of Mogadishu. And suddenly you've got to go through a completely different scenario and the ability to rapidly change that and to stress the commanders. Because Cities like Mogadishu are a great example. Yes, you have those sort of low, sort of shanty, lean-to areas, but you can't just train for that because the second you move through there, then you move into the more densely populated, more established buildings. And so getting our training facilities to dynamically adapt to all the different areas of cities now, you know, I'm sat in London at the moment, the skyscrapers of central London through to the sort of urban, residential urban, two-story buildings of sort of where I'm currently sat. That's two different operating environments. And you can only really replicate one of them in a fixed physical facility. So creating this sort of depth battle space synthetically provides an amazing opportunity. And also from an operational perspective, you know, the US military have jumped from multiple different sectors or areas or other operations over the last 20, 30, 40 years. And training infrastructure always takes a couple of years to catch up. And you always end up with training facilities from the last conflict for the next conflict. Whereas actually, if you make a facility that is largely sterile and the close, but is completely adaptable in the deep, you're able to change in minutes instead of years. And I think that makes training, I mean, it's our ambition and our hope that that will really close the gap on training in terms of, right, we're going to country X that we've never gone to before. Cool. Well, the synthetic deep battle space that that is looking at now when he's in the urban training environment is that country or, re- or, or sort of representative of that country rather than, you know, I, I think I trained for my last Afghanistan deployment in two foot of snow which wasn't exactly true to life. And I think that was the reality of the training facilities we have. That's not a criticism, but wouldn't it be great if what we train in is as close to the area we're going to operate in as possible? No, so let's get into that, right? So I'm not a believer in yet in virtual training, right? So I hated, you know, when I was at West Point, we have an amazing simulations lab and we have so many simulations that do, if you write enhanced learning. But I wasn't a believer of, okay, I can put this virtual reality Oculus Rift goggles on and immediately start training for urban operations. I just can't make the leap of jumping into a completely virtual, despite even if I'm on a walking treadmill, all this. That's why I'm so fascinated with your concept of combining a completely adaptable physical environment for the close combat training and integrating everything else that's going to be around, right? When a guy is on an objective, gets out of the vehicle, you and I have talked about, we make this giant gap of getting to the building, right? So all the training that needs to be done about getting to the building, navigating to it, to operating in streets and alleyways, and some training events do that. But to me, this isn't about you know just making the best special operating force, close quarters combat unit. This is about training for urban operations and how difficult that is in the modern era. I'm not a believer in inserting soldiers into the virtual and trying to train them for the close fight. I'm just not there. I'm a believer in combining an adaptable physical close fight in enhancement like you have. And we have some some things like that in our, you know, with the sight sound emitters, but combining that, and this is where I really want to get to, because I'm really fascinated about how you incorporated a combined arms fight of this, right? So you're training and the biometrics and the data, it's amazing. I don't know what we would do with soldiers like, dude, you weren't even looking at the target and you're shooting that kind of feedback that you would get from the AR capabilities you give. But what really fascinates me is what I always tell people about when they're trying to train, like, right, we all know that there's individual dismounted soldiers that need this training. 
But what the gap is, like you're forgetting about the leader, even in the close fight, maneuvering teams and squads and platoons, let alone the higher level leader commander sitting back in a, you know, in a vehicle or in a command center, how he visualizes the battle space in the operating environment and how that's maneuvering and the staff, same thing that's doing it. And if somebody watches your video, I see something that I've never seen before, having gone out to so many urban training sites, even the you see a soldier who's looking down at his digital device. We, we have different ones, you know, digital tablet, e-tablet, things like that. Getting the feeds that it was an aspect of 2008 training for me of getting drone footage. And there's a guy in a command center telling my platoons that they're going to the wrong building. That aspect of replicating, it is only done at the highest level training event, if at all, based on you know, different classifications, based on you just don't get that asset yet. We have some levels of it, but how you have in your in, in video, you know, the guy who's in the building is able to see what's going on outside the building. He's able to see the drone footage of maneuvering forces outside of his immediate close battle. And then heck, man, uh, the integration of a... So I think this is one of the most fascinating parts. So I got my e-tablet. I know that there. this is a combined arms fight. So I'm using fires. I'm using aviation. I'm using armor vehicles. But the one example of you have a unit training in a call for fire trainer who's integrated to the actual physical dismounted combat operations urban warfare training site the two are integrated so there's the guy's actually calling for fire it's perceived from the forward observers either on the ground or in a virtual training environment a call for fire simulator that we've all used but the guy on the ground in his e-tablet is able to see the effects of the fire he just called i think that's fascinating it's very kind. And to be honest, I was going to answer, I'm going to answer, you made a number of really good points there. And I think the, the first one I was going to focus on was we're in fierce agreement on the desire to put the dismounted close combat soldiers into VR is, I think, premature. And I think when we started the company in 2016, we looked at how close VR could get us to that sort of, you know, ready player one type environment. And the problem is, I'm a big believer in false training. Whatever you do in training has to replicate what you're doing in the real world. Otherwise, what you're doing is a waste of time. And the, the biggest issue I had was what we called HMD clash, was the inability to, you know, you had to remove the weapon site to ensure that your VR HMD wasn't clashing with the weapon. And I know that's a very minor one, and there's a million ways of getting rid of that. But then when you get in, suddenly you're into a loop that spirals out of control because then you get a, to get rid of it, you remove the scope, that changes the balance of the weapon. And if you're into real percentage-driven performance, that will have an impact. So, But then we sort of stepped back from it and went, yeah, but hang on, dismounted close combat training in terms of room entries, corridor drills, and the close fight, it's pretty good. You know, it, it needs to get more immersive. I think it needs to be um, enhanced. And that's why we sort of looked at the levels one to three. But the actual principles are fine. And for those of your listeners that watch the video, there's a graph that I think is pretty fundamental to everything that we've done, which is on one side, what is required? I, what are the operational requirements of defense? And then on the right, there is a second circle that is effectively what is possible. And our view is always what is available should sit perfectly between those two circles. If technology starts to drift into the what is possible, but not what is required, you're just creating something that is effectively looks good, but isn't needed. 
Or if it's the other way around and the technology is just not ready, well, then you just got to circle back to it. I think there is a tendency, I think maybe potentially due to the media, the large amount of knowledge about virtual reality, there has been potentially a tendency to push artificially and try and get it in for the sake of getting it in rather than adding value. So we then took a step back and went, actually, let's stop this. We think to your point on sort of the combined arms battle space, defense operations have a real opportunity over other aspects such as gaming in that if you imagine a contemporary military operation, the troops on the ground, i.e. those moving between the buildings, cannot see normally the combined arms assets around them. The drone is too high above them. The artillery is potentially over a ridge line. The command element is sat you know, two miles away watching what they're doing. And that visual disconnection or lack of connectivity, as we like to call it, prevents an incredible opportunity because effectively what you have is the entity in the close fight cannot see the depth battle space, i.e. all the combined arms assets, but the combined arms assets can largely see the close battle space. And what that presented was the ability for the integrated reality piece that we discussed. And what I mean by that is imagine the only visual connectivity the team that is in the close fight has is exactly like you said is the tablet you know when you're in a building you're a platoon commander or a team commander moving through a building you're in that building you are immersed and completely overwhelmed by what's going on in that building the only way you can see out of that building into the quote-unquote combined arms battle space is typically through your tablet device so that meant actually the inside out is a relatively simple thing to replicate. I mean, not from a technological perspective, it's taken us two and a half years, but actually from a visual theoretical perspective, it's actually quite easy. And that then drifted into the combined arms simulators. And then you started to look at all the different aspects that we needed to replicate. So we initially spent a lot of time on the direct fire, creating, as you see in, in the launch, a direct fire sniper simulator that is able to look into the battle space. So imagine a sniper that's 700 meters or 600 meters dislocated to an advancing section. If that sniper is well hidden, the ground troops can't see him. They can just see the side of a mountain, which means you don't need to recreate that visual connectivity. Whereas the sniper can see the advancing troops because he's looking through times 12, times 15 optics. And then ISTAR, which was another aspect that you see in the launch. We then went back and said, no, no, we want to do this even more. We went out and partnered with a, another UK company called D3A, another veteran-owned company that focus on some of the joint fires, the combined arms, fires element. And effectively, you then bring those together into that synthetic environment where everything that is happening in the physical close space is being recorded and then recreated in the synthetic, whereas everything that's happening in the synthetic is actually less important because the close can't see the synthetic. So I'll go through an example to sort of explain that. Use a great example of call for fire. So you've got a scenario in one of our smart facilities where a section is moving down a corridor and conducting room entries. The commander looks at the I-Star feed on his tablet and sees there is a synthetic reinforcement approaching the building he's in. So decides to call for some joint fires. So effectively decides he wants an artillery strike on one of the MSRs towards him. He coordinates that fire, speaks directly to the fire simulator. That fire simulator turned that into a fire mission, speak directly to a mortar simulator, a company that we've been working closely with, and then that mortar fire mission is done, fired, and the commander watches it on his tablet. If it's correct, fantastic. If it's not, he can adjust. But what makes it especially immersive 
is the audio and light and smoke impact. So for instance, imagine that commander's artillery strike comes a little bit too close. We're not talking danger close, but close enough that you can hear and feel it. Those sensations are recreated using level two 4G or AV in the facility. So the team that's moved into that room might not be aware that the commander's coordinating a combined arms attack, but then they're going to hear a massive explosion and see the smoke you know, sort of pop out as it sort of drafts into their building. And suddenly you're creating that complete immersive loop. You've got a commander that's got a fires net and a command net on. You've got a corporal or a sergeant moving into the room that's suddenly experiencing the after effect of an artillery strike. And you've got a command and fires element looking into that synthetic battle space, watching what's going on. You know, in terms of hitting all the different training aspects, you're hitting the basic one, room entries. You're hitting the command element. You're hitting the fires element. And you're hitting the combination between the two. And the reason we sort of focus so much on combined is throughout my career, the first time I called in a a mortar fire mission was on operations. Because up to that point, the mortar elements of the commander unit I was in trained separately. I arrived at a commander unit and had never called a live fire mission in until I was on operations. That is not a necessarily a a failing. That is just the nature of how military organizations work. Whereas actually now you can have a genuinely, truly integrated battle space where a junior platoon commander is calling for fire on a physical footprint that could be 50 by 100 meters you know you're effectively creating a battle space that could be kilometers by kilometers on a physical footprint that's hundreds of meters by hundreds of meters so being able to go in and call a fast airstrike into a complex urban operations and it take 10 minutes to bimble down or walk down from the battalion lines or battalion headquarters rather than the complexity of doing that for real you know going out to a training facility that you can drive lot drop live ordnance on it getting the clearances getting the jtac getting that done you know you could have done a hundred run-throughs in the time it would take to do one and not and i'm not for a second saying it replaces real but it significantly enhances real if that makes sense no, it makes absolute sense and i like i said i feel it that there's something different with this bridging of the gap and combining the physical, I think that's always going to be required. You're just not going to get over the physical reactions. And then I also think about cognitive load, right? We've developed close quarters battle in order to increase the success of entering close quarters facilities, buildings, airplanes, everything, and then develop these tactics to, it really reduces the cognitive load. It leads to success. It becomes reflexive repetition after repetition. I loved the start of your launch where it talked about changing the capability to do urban operations training from your know, monthly or quarterly down to daily aspect of that. And then I think of for whom is that for the teams practicing that clearance operation, increasing the complexity and the cognitive load of those people. What's near and dear to my heart though is increasing the complexity and cognitive load of the leader at echelon of urban operations. And I think that's what I saw and that's what hit home to me. And, you know, Rob, we, we got to end this because I think we can go on forever. And there's so much I apologize for missing that I think that needs to be highlighted. Everything from your, you know, we've talked to adaptable enemy. So, you know, we need to be able to adapt the physical space, but we also need to be able to adapt the enemy to types of enemies that are less just sitting in the back of a room and waiting for you to enter and how you can change the physical space to account for that. Everything from, you know, you and I have talked about how, how to use your system to do defensive operations because we sometimes over-focus on the offensive. What I think is missing in a lot of urban training is the attack of a fortified structure. So, you know, a structure you've got to fight to get to. And then inside is not the type of inner and clear room situation that are in a lot of these high-intensity combat 
scenarios that we've seen in the past and these different battles where he's waiting, he's bunkered. It's a fortified structure. Sure, prep it with fire, but your tactics have to adapt to the enemy that's presented in this context. And I think you guys have developed a system that allows for rapidly doing that. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about this, and I'm sure that we'll be talking a lot more in the future. It's been an absolute pleasure, and yeah, I'd love to talk again. It's been uh, it's been great to sort of really get into the, the weeds of of close urban combat. So thanks very much. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NGY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.